This is The Top, where I interview entrepreneurs who are number one or number two in their industry in terms of revenue or customer base. You'll learn how much revenue they're making, what their marketing funnel looks like, and how many customers they have. I'm now at $20,000 per talk. Five and six million. He is hell-bent on global domination. We just broke our 100,000 units sold mark. And I'm your host, Nathan Latka. In the last episode, number nine, you met the 15-year-old who sat on the board of a Japanese company, made $15,000 per day selling Beanie Babies in a super weird way, and now sells over $80 million in cars every year. All right, guys, our guest today is Ben Weta. Now, Ben graduated from Cornell with his master's in architecture in 2005, where he then continued guest lecturing. Now, in 2006, he founded Zero Energy Design, where his work was featured in Architectural Record and Popular Mechanics. Ben continues to run his own firm in Boston, right there on Milk Street, and is actively investing in real estate in a not-so-common way, which we'll discuss on the show. So, Ben, are you ready to take us to the top? Uh, well, maybe just a little bit higher than we previously were, but <laughs> let's, let's call that the top. Such an architecture major response. <laughs> well, dude, listen, we, uh, you know, we've had a ton of fun together, whether it's been on San, out on Santa Barbara, going out sailing to the, to the Catalina Islands. And, you know, I knew I really liked you when I saw how competitively you played pickup football on the beach. Nathan, I think you're mistaking me for yourself. I'm, I'm pretty sure you were the one that was like launching people in the air. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I am not. I'm not competitive. I don't know what you're talking about. No, that was that was certainly you know one of the best uh, two or three day periods of of that summer. Uh, that, was that was that was pretty epic. So tell anyone, did I miss anything in your bio? Any 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 other kind of groundwork you want to lay before we get into some questions? Uh, I don't know. I think that's a good enough start. Basically, okay. I design stuff and share the ideas. <laughs> well, and you're so humble about it. I mean, you have inked, you know, you know, partnership deals with some of the biggest brands in the world, especially in the architecture and kind of home craftsman space, ranging from Ryobi to Home Depot. Um, you're also advising companies. You're getting into real estate in a not-so-conventional way. So I specifically want to focus on what you're doing with real estate because I think it's genius. And I've listened to a lot of other, you know, real estate books and podcasts, and nobody's thinking about real estate quite like you are. So walk me through, if you could, tell me the story about this location you picked up in Boston and kind of what you're doing with it. Sure. So my background's in architecture and design. And traditionally when architects or designers, when they when they try to get into the development game, their design sensibilities can actually uh, cost them uh, from the financial side of things. Uh, when when you really care about the design and that's like your passion, and then you try to develop a building for financial purposes. You, unless you're able to dramatically pass on those cost savings or the the sort of extra cost you invested into the design to the consumer, it can be sort of a liability. So when I approached development, I was very aware that I would need the right location or need the right community. So I need to approach it as a partnership so that when I built a more expensive building that I thought was better designed, there'd be other ways I could recoup that additional investment. So, uh, I ended up, along with uh, some investor partners, uh, securing a piece of land in Jamaica Plain uh, in Boston. And that's sort of like the Brooklyn of Boston. It's a, a 
sort of hipster. Uh, it's definitely been gentrified uh, to some degree. And uh, when I saw that there was a Whole Foods going in, I started looking for empty lots uh, right around it. Hey, wait, um, real quick, Ben. I want to dive into that for a second. Did you get a plan like from the town center or something that where you knew Whole Foods was coming? Or were you just driving being observant and you saw construction starting and said, shit, I should look at real estate around this area? <laughs> I actually saw that there was a proposal for a Whole Foods to come. In so a, smart. Lo- local thing, uh, local, some sort of media website, and that some of the current residents were protesting it or were sort of uh, mildly against it because uh, they thought it was displacing a sort of more uh, traditional sort of ethnic grocery store. Um, I sort of looked at it as, you know, the analytical side and doing sort of comp re- research and stuff like that isn't the part I enjoy the most. I, I prefer the sort of design uh, and construction part. So I said, well, I'm sure Whole Foods did their due diligence on uh, sort of picking locations. So I will sort of piggyback off of their research and start looking for land uh, within about a half mile uh, radius of them. And that's how I found uh, the lot. And typically, when developers sort of uh, do these kind of things, they try to use as little capital as possible and then go as fast as possible. Uh Um, And I knew as a designer that I was going to want to take my time and really figure out what was the the opportunity to build something really amazing on this site. And I didn't want to go fast. So I had to figure out a different model financially for thinking about how to make that again not be a liability. I had to figure out how to make my my interests and the things that I think are uh, I'm good at not actually cost me money, but instead sort of amplify the financial opportunity via via your cre- via like a creative mode of thinking, which is not typical in the development space. Right, it's all speed and capital. Totally. Uh, let me then, Ben, real ahead. quick. Let me ask a capital question, real quick. I know you had partners that that probably thought more about this than you did, but what did you buy the piece of property for, and what was it? Was it just land? Was it something already there? We got uh, a empty piece of land, and that's how I sort of uh, dealt with my guilt about sort of uh, gentrification. So we weren't displacing people. We weren't buying an old building, tearing it down, and building you know new luxury condos. No, we bought a, a piece of land that had been empty for about I think uh, you know fifteen or twenty years. Um, we got the blank land for just right around a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, uh, it was zoned for two units, right? So you could build a duplex there, um, and what we immediately did is since I'm very interested in sustainable design and green design is I wanted to build, you know, a state of the art, uh, solar powered, super insulated building, um, that would really reduce its impact on the environment. Now I know that consumers don't always want to pay extra for that on the sort of either the renting end or on the purchasing end. So my strategy was rather than try to make uh, increase my margins there is could I leverage that with the city to get some zoning variances? So since I could only, since I bought the land for a hundred thousand uh, and it was zoned for two units, I, you know, when I made my proposal to the city, I said, well, I'm going to build a really energy efficient building that uses less resources than a typical, uh, than a typical building. So can I get a vari- can I get a zoning variance to build a three unit building? So I worked with the community to get them behind the proposal. I worked on the design to make something that the the, the local neighbors and stuff thought was uh, aesthetically pleasing. I spent a lot of time sort of explaining to people how the building was going to be different than a typical one, 
And after working with the city for about six to eight months, they granted the variance. Wow. And that's huge because it's, it's a great thing really for everybody because we get a, uh, typically buildings in that area have six inch thick walls, which means there's only about five and a half inches of insulation. Uh-huh. My building has 12 inch thick walls. So it means it's, it's about double the insulation of a normal building. Now that obviously costs quite a bit more, but it's great because because the city was able to sort of uh, see that and give me the variance, it encouraged me to invest more into the building that will last longer, use less resources. Um, and so it was sort of a win for everybody because that one zoning variance allowing me to build an extra unit, that dramatically increased the value of the whole project. Yeah. Well, Ben, I want to keep the spotlight on you. I mean, that's what my goal is here. And I think you're a fantastic example of a creative mind that that is applying that to business. So I, I think people will appreciate how creative you've, you've been if they understand a, a little bit more of the numbers. So a, a, a unit zoned for two units in Boston, what is the rent that you think you could command on that? And then what's the rent that you were able to increase it to with you know three units? So if it was two units uh, with the sort of a maximum uh, square footage that we were allowed to build, we'd probably bring in about, uh, you know, about 22 to 2,500 per unit. Um, so we're looking at like right, right under like sort of between four and 5,000 for a two unit building. And obviously with a three unit building, we're, we're increasing that to about, you know, 7,000 a month. Yep. Um, so it was, a it's a pretty significant, uh, increase. Um, and again, it didn't take, uh, you know, versus the sort of extra energy upgrades. We're probably spending about hundred thousand dollars in energy upgrades. Yeah. Um, so, so smart. I mean, I just want to point out some things for the top tribe listening right now. Ben did two things. I want you to pull out from this one is he was able to predict the future by, by looking at plans for a whole food going in, right. And anticipating using somebody else's research that, that, uh, space that was being gentrified, Jamaica Plains in Boston, was growing in value. So he leapt ahead of the opportunity. And then not only that, but he then worked using ne- negotiation power around this creative, efficient building design he put together. So he sold the city and the town on his vision and was able to increase from two units to three units zoning-wise, which helped him increase cash flow potential from 5K a month up to about 7500 bucks per month. So Ben, you put about 100 grand with you and your partners into getting the space do you mind sharing what you spent on construction? Uh, well, we're still about six weeks away. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so hopefully it'll be around uh, 800000 for construction. Um, you know, uh, with, with construction projects, it's normally you don't realize how over budget you are until like sort of the last, the last few payments. Yep. But I think it's going to be right around uh, $800,000 for about 30, 3,200 square feet, uh, across three, uh, three units. So, um, so call it, call it a million, right? All in with other costs popping up, right? I mean, it's fair to say. Yeah. So, so, and plus this is a building that is extremely unique. You've built it for a specific type of demographic. Walk me through just because I want to make sure, you know, we get right into the nuts and bolts. Once this is complete, say six or seven weeks from now, what's your strategy in terms of renting it? Are you going to use a service like Airbnb or are you going to find long-term renters? What's your vision? Uh, I'm going to experiment a little bit because again, you know, uh, as much as I sort of have a hunch about sort of, uh, the future in some ways, I, 
I, I try to be pretty honest about what I, what I don't know. Um, so I'm, uh, in the process of uh, negotiating with a buyer to sell one of the units and we got a, a fantastic, uh, uh, offer. Um, okay, Ben, come on. You can't say that. You know what everyone's going to be thinking. They're going to be going, <laughs> what is the offer? So if you can't give a number, could you maybe give a range? It's right, right around half a million okay. for the smallest uh, unit for one unit. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So, so you put in a million, one unit and there's three is going for potentially around 500. I mean, so the markup here is incredible and you can really credit that back to the creativity and design that you've put into it. Yeah. Well, one of the things just to, to jump in real quick is that when, when I talked to sort of real estate professionals, they all said to, well, we did the analysis. We looked at our comps, <laughs> you know, these, you should be building two bedroom, two bath apartments because that's what sells. And then I asked them, well, how do you know that's what sells? And they go, oh, well, we looked at all the things that sold in that area. But all the things that were in that area had all been built more than 30 years ago, and there wasn't any new building. So they were doing a false, you know, uh, false, a false sort of comparison, right? So th they were saying that because this is all that exists, this is the only thing that should exist. And it was, it was so maddingly, it was just drove me nuts, uh, like how uh, just sort of confident they were about such bad data. And meanwhile, when I actually interviewed people that had bought in those two bedroom, two bath, uh, uh, apartments, uh, overwhelmingly what I saw confirmed actual data about the demographics of Boston, which Boston has one of the highest rates of young professionals in their thirties that are unmarried. So what people were doing was buying these two bedroom, one and a half or two bath apartments and turning one of the bedrooms into a closet or office. <laughs> they didn't need so, it. No. And yeah. so it's also more expensive. It's much cheaper to build uh, loft style uh, buildings with, you know, one really nice bathroom and bigger closet space. When you also look that the average sort of woman in her 30s that is in the sort of uh, uh, economic range that we were looking at for these units has like between like 40 and 60 pairs of shoes. And the average closets in this area were only like, cause they were, you know, 30 year old buildings were only like three feet long and these ben, tiny little rickety things. I have things. to stop you. This is so impressive guys. Like knowing your market to the degree that Ben does it, Ben's like the anti spreadsheet. He just throws out this shit that works in the past. He said, what's something unique I can build that no one's even thinking about. He understands the interviews and he executes. If you are loving this episode, you will love episode number eight, where we talk to the head of strategy at GoPro, responsible for taking them from $300,000 a year in sales to $300 million in sales. And to celebrate the top tribe, I am giving you guys the chance to win a GoPro and my top three favorite business books. In order to win, simply text the word Nathan to 33444. Again, N-A-T-H-A-N to 33444. 444 for your chance to win hundreds of dollars in prizes every week. The first one is a GoPro and my favorite business books. Ben, we could talk forever about this. I mean, you, you again, I can't wait to see what this does over the next six to 12 months. Maybe we'll go sailing again a year from now and we'll talk on a beach about how great it's worked out. But it is time for something special. Do you know what time it is? Oh, I'm dying. Come to on, that man. Out. It's the <laughs> you sound so excited. It's time for the famous five, baby. All right. Number one, what is your favorite business book? Actually, scratch that with you. I want to say just what's your favorite uh, book? It could be creative or business. Cradle to Cradle uh, by McDonough. Um, it's more of a design book about sort of closing loops for environmental purposes, but any business person should read it as a way of eliminating waste and streamlining production. <sighs> So smart. Okay. What is the next conference you're going to? It could be design or business. 
I don't know. I, I don't really go to too many conferences and stuff. Like the, I'm mean, you know a little bit more on the the introverted side. Uh, so. Uh, you know, those big rooms with lots of people. And I also feel there's like a certain amount of chest thumping that's disguised by humble bragging at conferences that just, I don't know. I mean, you know me, like I'd rather totally. just like, I love it. I'd rather sit there and have coffee and sort of, you know, snipe at those things than partake. Good. I, I, look, I love it. I think, I think it's really important. Um, so the number, number three, what's your favorite online tool like Evernote? Uh, so I, like, uh, probably, Gmail. And so this is my thing with these things is that I think we're real people are really quick to look for a new tool before they fully exhausted the full array of things that they already have, right? So it's like most people when they use like Photoshop, for example, they're probably only using like 10 to 15% of its overall capacity. My thing is like anytime I see a new thing, I said before I add one more app to things, is this something I can do with the tools I already, already have. have. Yeah. And one of the things I'm using now with, you know, it's not, it's not my invention. It's not a brilliant life hack, but it's just simple and effective is that I have my Google calendar, send me text alerts and you know, that's been around forever and you can write a lot in those little notifications. And, uh, that's one of the things that like is, I think people get so they want to make a bigger toolbox. And I think that sort of speaks to the sort of like, we like Batman, how he has all these like specific tools for each thing. <laughs> but if you get really good at one tool that can do a lot of things, you know, it, it can kind of make life a little bit easier. Totally. What, what is the Swiss knife? Well, I'd say like, I would say, uh, yeah, the Leatherman or something, you yep. know, it's like the multi-tool. Great. I would say, I would say Gmail kind of is, is that. that. Awesome, man. Yeah, I, look, I, I think really valid points. Use what you already have and optimize the hell out of those before you start looking for new stuff. All right, number four, if you need to outsource something, whether it's video or production or design for your business, which websites do you typically use? Huh. I don't really outsource too much. It's more like a, I'm not, I'm not that sort of much of an efficiency or optimization thing. I'm more of a, I try to align things with, with motivation because uh, I'm prolific when I, when I like the work and I'm lazy uh, <laughs> uh, when I have to do spreadsheets. Yeah. But I, w I will say the one thing today, the, the, the little hack uh, where I used outsourced services is combining blue apron with task rabbit yep. <laughs> is the quickest and easiest way to get a personal chef. Yep. So smart. I also use Kitchit for getting chefs in cities when I'm traveling. Both nice. great tools. So, okay. Last question of the famous five, Ben, if you wish your 20 year old self knew one thing, what would it be? Oh, I don't know. Like, I think I, the problem with my 20 year old self is that I thought I knew everything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted you to say like, like drink more organic coffee or something like yeah. something creative off the whim. Yeah. But it's like, again, with like the optimization thing, it's uh, you know, I was, I, I was so falsely confident at that point, but I kind of needed to be in order to be, you know, have that hubris was functional and that it pushed me to try things that I wasn't, that were beyond my capabilities. So maybe like, and, maybe like something like yeah. intentional ignorance. <laughs> Is that a good yeah. way to say it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I, I feel super lucky with how things have turned out and I wouldn't want to change anything. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted, I, I would love to observe my 20 year old self just for, for uh, shits and giggles and <laughs> just, just to sort of, you know, make enjoy, fun of him. 
enjoy that blissful, uh, youthful arrogance, but uh, certainly wouldn't want to interrupt that sort of uh, inevitable flow that's led me to where I am. I love that creative out- approach to life, Ben, and it's amazing. So listen, if people want to learn from you the best, which is by watching what you do, where can people connect with you online? Uh, homemade-modern.com is my website and you can see all the DIY projects that I post and Instagram at Benjamin Ueda and just sort of Google around until you find it and uh, you'll get there. It's my Instagram and that's where I sort of do sort of you know weekly updates of what I'm building, who I'm collaborating with, what I'm working on. You, you're like a lot of your Instagram stuff. I mean, it's like a real life Pinterest board. It's extremely creative and stimulating. So Ben, I think you've also, I mean, I think you're doing extremely interesting things in real estate. You're, you're, you're doing what you love and not forcing yourself to do things you hate. I love that I can call you a friend. So thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks, Nathan. All right, Ben, take Have care. Fun. See you. Bye-bye. Bye. In the next episode, number 10, you'll meet a creative who is using a $250,000 real estate investment to generate a $1.5 million return using not common, but hyper-creative strategies. All you creatives and designers out there will love this one. This podcast is produced by Oration Recording and is sponsored by Eddie Communications and Roanoke, Virginia's Grandin CoLab, the premier workspace for entrepreneurs and growing companies.